Good morning, this is David Bennett, and this is Bitcoin And, a podcast where I try to find the edge effect between the worlds of Bitcoin, gaming, permaculture, podcasting, and education to gain a better understanding of all. Edge effect is a concept from ecology describing a greater diversity of life where the edges of two systems overlap. While species from either system can be found at the edge, it is important to note there are species in the overlap that exist in neither system, and that is what I seek to uncover. So join me in discovering the variety of things being created as Bitcoin rubs up against other systems. It is 8.49 a.m. Central Standard Time. It's the 15th of February, 2022. This is episode 545 of Bitcoin, and there's some fundraising concerns concerning the honk, honk, hodl fundraising and all the stuff that's going on up in Canada. We're going to get to that. I'm going to try to do a longer read about uh, the mathematician uh, John Nash. If you don't know who John Nash is, he's pretty much the man who... Well, he kind of compiled what is now known as modern game theory. So when people talk about game theory, you know, the game theory of Bitcoin and all that, the game theory behind financial markets, you know, game theory and anything really, it all kind of starts with John Nash. And apparently uh, along with Henry Ford and Buckminster Fuller and uh, one other guy, there was another guy that was talking about energy money or, you know, sort of like a a different kind of money than the fiat standard or a gold standard or anything like that. Um, Those guys were all talking about it. Well, it turns out that John Nash, the mathematician behind modern game theory, uh, was also in that school of thought. So he was thinking along the same lines that we probably need a different money. And when you start thinking about all the people like Buckminster Fuller and what he did, you know, Henry Ford, love him or hate him. Uh, The guy kind of revolutionized the car industry. Uh, These guys are, were all, you know, heavy hitters and John Nash, definitely not a slouch. I think he won the Nobel prize and I'm pretty sure that he's holding a Fields medal, which is like a Nobel prize for just mathematicians. So we'll get into that. And then, We've got some of the Bitfinex hack news. We've got, what else? Oh, we've got New Hampshire's in the news. So we'll get to all that. But I kind of want to start out with the situation that's going on with Hong Kong HODL, the trucker convoy in uh, Canada, and the Emergency Powers Act and all that stuff. So let's start with Jesse Will- Willem's piece from Bitcoin Magazine. Bitcoin fundraising for Ottawa truckers. Freedom Convoy hits close to $1 million. Bitcoin fundraising for the Ottawa Freedom Truckers Convoy has met its goal of 21 Bitcoin, with more donations still flowing in. Now, over 22 Bitcoin worth more than $932,000 has been raised from 5,511 donors. <laughs> That's pretty good, man. The fundraising committee is in the process of consolidating the Bitcoin that has been raised and are focusing on how best to get the funds to the truckers. The key holders for the wallets containing funds are tentatively the Ottawa Freedom Convoy Leaders Freedom Convoy Nonprofit Organization, but this will change shortly. Since centralized crowdfunding platforms GoFundMe and GiveSendGo are no longer viable fundraising options, with even Canada's Toronto Dominion Bank freezing bank accounts, we'll get into more of that here in a second, used to raise funds for the truckers, Bitcoin is fulfilling a key role, allowing the protesters to escape financial censorship. 20% of funds raised are being consolidated in a hardware wallet for the truckers' organizers to use for immediate needs, including food, hotel rooms, legal aid, and fuel. 80% of the funds are being consolidated into a multi-signature wallet. They're using a nunchuck.io multi-sig wallet because, quote, it makes collaborative custody through multi-sig intuitive and easy to use for non-technical users, protest organizer and Bitcoin activist Nobody Caribou told Bitcoin Magazine. Fundraising committee member BTC Sessions told Bitcoin Magazine, quote, For security reasons, we found it to be important that the key holders are not publicly identifiable. 
There is a new multi-sig quorum now. Only Nobody Caribou and BJ Ditcher, <clears throat> which is one of the truckers, are privy to who holds the keys. Myself, Greg Foss, and Jeff Booth no longer hold keys as we were previously points of failure. We ran the risk of three key holders within Canada being coerced to give up the Bitcoin, and this is no longer the case, end quote. Keep BTC sessions in mind, okay? Uh, if, if I forget about it, make sure you tag me uh, and, and tell me how I screwed up and forgot to talk about BTC sessions. Uh, I need to dive into that. Continuing on, options for how to get these funds out to truckers are being considered and will likely depend on the wishes of the truckers. Proposals being considered depending on how the truckers want to receive the funds. Yeah, well, as credit card payments or overpayments, uh, e-transfer, direct bank deposits, gift cards, yeah, you know, among other strategies. Organizers are considering using Open Dimes, which is a small USB stick that allows you to send and transfer Bitcoin like a dollar bill to get Bitcoin to the truckers, although no decisions have been made. As the country explodes with enthusiasm in their fight for freedom, blockades are growing up or going up at a number of Canada-U.S. border crossings from Ontario to British Columbia. One reporter compared it to whack-a-mole. As one crossing blockade is closed down, they move on to the next crossing. For the Bitcoin fundraising liaison and committee, this is beyond their expectations, so they've tentatively decided to limit funds to truckers in Ottawa. This is new territory, both for the fundraisers and the convoy organizers, and show that freedom is a priority for many people as donations continue to come in from around the world. Nobody Caribou told Bitcoin Magazine. All right, so that's the end of that article. So let's let's dive into this one. This is a tweet from Foss Greg Foss. That's at Foss Greg Foss. And of course, this is Greg Foss, noted Canadian and Bitcoiner who came on the scene in explosive manner sometime last year. Actually, he's been here for a long time, but he really got to be well known last year. He says, good morning. <clears throat> Upon further reflection, I am staying for the fight. Thanks to all in the BTC community for the support and love with Honk Honk Hoddle. Freedom isn't free. Freedom is dangerous. He actually spells it free land is dangerous. I'm going to chalk that up to Greg making a, a fat fingered typo. But Freeland is actually kind of a cool word to use here, honestly. Freeland is dangerous. Any kind of freedom or any kind of land where freedom exists, it's a dangerous place to be from within and without, you know, I'm going to go with freedom. It's, <clears throat> I would rather deal <clears throat> with the problems that freedoms, freedom and freedoms provide me than authoritarianism does. Okay. So I need to talk about BTC sessions. I don't have his tweet right up here. And I, I honestly don't think it's appropriate to read his direct tweet. Uh, he has gone through a little bit of mental anguish because of this whole thing btc sessions is one of the one of the organizers of the freedom convoy you know uh donation thing with honk honk hodl and a well-known bitcoiner og to the max but even he found himself in a precarious situation which we will get into here in a second but uh we'll go, we'll go ahead and, and uh uh we'll go ahead and draw that out a little bit uh, the Emergency Powers Act of eight, nine, or sorry, 1988 has been enacted by the, the authoritarian leader, uh, Justin Castro Trudeau. And <clears throat> it's basically, we'll get into the details of it in the next story, but uh, it's, it's kind of bad. And BTC Sessions, as a Canadian who is still like, you know, sequestered in Canada, you know, would have no... He hasn't said it directly, but there's no way to avoid the fact that he found himself in a very dangerous situation. And one of the tweets that I saw from BTC Sessions was that it was basically like, um, you know, you need to quote, you need to spend my money the way I tell you to spend my money. And the uh, uh, second quote in the tweet was something like, <clears throat> so, well, if you want all your money back, sure, sure thing. I can arrange that. Third quote, no. I want you to spend the money exactly as I tell you to spend the money or I'm going to sue you. And I was like, what the hell's going on here? 
a couple of uh, a couple of tweets later, I or you know through my timeline, I realized uh, that there was another tweet from BTC Sessions who said that he is stepping down from key holding and getting getting himself some distance from this entire thing, and that the keys, <clears throat> according to BTC Sessions, have been transferred out of his possession before the Emergency Powers Act began. Okay, do you believe him? It doesn't matter whether you believe him or not. It, it really doesn't. Here is a guy who's, you know, he's doing his best to, you know, keep himself whole, keep himself together in one of the worst places on the, on the planet right now. And last thing that the man needs is any more, any more fucking heartache. And with the Emergency Powers Act, like we'll get into, he was in danger. So he is stepping down. And his tweet basically said, and we kind of saw it in the last story, was that the keys have been transferred out of the possession of himself um, and Greg Foss and somebody else. And now it's like just nobody caribou knows who the key holders are and stuff like that. So that's where all that's coming from. I don't blame BTC Sessions. I I do not blame him one single bit for wanting to kind of bow out at this point. And why? Well, you know what? Let's find out why decrypt.co and who's writing it is jason nelson canada authorizes emergency rules to cut off protesters access to funds including crypto the canadian government today for the first time ever invoked the emergencies act in a bid to restrict the flow of funds to truck drivers protesting the country's covid19 restrictions under the act The government can freeze bank accounts without going through the court system, as well as take a number of other actions to force an end to the demonstrations. Quote, we are broadening the scope of Canada's anti-money laundering and anti-terrorist financial rules so that they cover crowdfunding platforms and the payment providers that they use. Canada Deputy Prime Authoritarian Christia Freeland said during a press conference on, uh, well, actually today, that was yesterday, by the way, this, uh, what, this article was written yesterday. Freeland, uh, who also serves as finance minister, added these actions would also cover cryptocurrencies. Oh, Freeland. Oh, that's what Greg Foss was saying. Oh, okay. Now I get it. I get it. I get it. Sorry about that. I, did, I didn't see her name when I was going through the story earlier. Um, <clears throat> yeah. So Freeland is dangerous then. The move comes after weeks of protest by a group of truck drivers dubbed the Freedom Convoy, which has taken to blocking roadways, flouting mask rules, and honking their horns to voice their displeasure with vaccination mandates. The group's GoFundMe account was shut down by the platform on February the 4th after pressure from the Canadian government, at which point it turned to alternative funding methods, including Bitcoin. Though Emergencies Act measures take immediate effect. The government of Prime Minister Justin Castro Trudeau has one week to receive support from both of Canada's legislative bodies, which is the House of Commons and the Senate. While the government is name-checking cryptocurrencies and has some leverage to freeze bank accounts connected to crypto firms and users to Bitcoin proponents, this is nonetheless an argument for the asset, which is harder to shut down because it does not run on a centralized network controlled by a traditional payment provider. Nareej Akhwal, I can't pronounce his name, sorry, Nareej, uh, sorry, Niraj. Sorry, Niraj, I can't pronounce either one of your names, of crypto lobbying organization Coin Center tweeted sarcastically, oh no, please don't expose how easily the state can lean on financial intermediates to cut off political protest fundraising, end quote. Naib Bukele has a tweet here that's in the, uh, in the article. It says, are these the people who like to give lessons to other countries about democracy and freedom? This is one of the top ranking countries in the democracy index? Your credibility on these topics is now worth zero. And he's got a video attached of Christia Freeland talking about whatever she's talking about. El Salvador President Nayib Bukele, the authoritarian leading leader who last year pushed through a law making Bitcoin legal tender, also weighed in. Yes, we understand that. We just read his tweet. Um, I don't know, not exactly sure at this point just how authoritarian Naib Bukele is. Although, if I was Naib Bukele and I was a dyed-in-the-wool authoritarian, I would so be using Canada as cover for my own bullshit. So I'm not, you know, I'm definitely not going to rah-rah <coughs> Naib at this point. 
I still actually, I, I don't know. I, I'm one of those people that hope that Naib Bukele ends up being a good guy and that all the stuff that we've heard about him is not true or rather overblown. But like I said yesterday, rhetoric is a bitch and she basically doesn't play very fair. Not She doesn't play very fair at all. Um, <clears throat> so we just are going to have to wait and see what Naib Bukele actually does to find out whether or not, you know, if he is authoritarian, is he not authoritarian? But it doesn't matter. This thing is a mess. Because now you've got a situation where, well, let's just say it. Let's let's peel back the layers and just be truthful here. You've got a you you're at a point now where some of the most hardcore Bitcoiners who know what the power of Bitcoin is kind of quaking a little bit in the face of how extreme authoritarianism can get. And while this is 100% a, you couldn't, you can't buy, you can't buy better publicity for Bitcoin than, than what's going on with Canada. You can't, it's impossible. Be that as it may, it's still, it's still worth our while to understand just how dangerous extreme authoritarianism can really get. And I keep waiting for military and police forces to just look at their own government and say, no, and it hasn't happened. You know, if I, I, I don't know how to be a police officer, I was never trained to do so, but I, I, so I'm, I'm you know, speaking out of my ass here. I don't see how the police can go on the streets and beat their own citizens senseless. Although you have to ask the question in ancient Rome, all the tax collectors were rich very rich. Why? Well, they had to live in the place where they stole the money from the people so that they could give it to fucking Caesar. You have to pay people very, very well to do that. And yes, I know what you're screaming. Cops aren't paid well at all. Begs the question. I mean, even back in Roman times, Caesar, all of them, knew that they were going to have to pay the tax collectors a shit ton of money because they had to live eat, go to bars with the very same people that came up to the window and gave them money at the point of a sword. My, how times have changed. So what the hell is being held? I mean, we can see that, you know, that works on human greed. You pay somebody enough money and yeah, you'll, you'll, you'll find, you'll start finding people that will easily reject or at least cover up their ethics and moral base. But when you're only getting paid $55,000, $65,000 a year, even with a pension, I'm not sure exactly if that's enough money for me to go beat my fellow citizens whom I have to live with. And I wonder, is it a symptom of what happens when you're in a very, very, very large uh, and populated city? Because the chances of you actually seeing the guy that you beat on the street again, ever, probably nil. Now you live in a town with 10,000 people, eh, that shit changes quite a bit. The, you, know, you know the cops. The cops know you. And I don't think that kind of behavior is the same in smaller towns, which is one of the reasons why I'm always saying, if you can pack up your shit, sell your house, or if you're not, if you don't own a house, then it's a little bit easier for you. Get the fuck out. You don't want to be there. This shit is going to get a lot worse <clears throat> before it gets any better. And when I, I mean a lot worse, I mean a lot worse. When I've got some of the OG Bitcoiners that are kind of quaking and wanting to get distance themselves from any kind of Bitcoin that they hold that can be attached to them and whatever designated number they were given at birth in whatever country they were born in, that they don't want to go to jail, that they don't want to be shot, that they don't want to put a, have a black bag shoved over their head and end up in some for fucking foreign country like Turkey in some prison being beaten to death. Because that shit could happen. And it's a sobering thought. Because all the time we're out there going, oh, there's nothing they can do. There's nothing they can do. If they can identify your ass, which is very much harder to do with Bitcoin than anything else. I mean, it's like simple as shit to do with your bank account. Bitcoin, 
closely, you know, very close to damn near impossible, but you have to do it right. And any mistakes along the way, because it is so nascent of a technology, can somehow or another peg your ass, you know, your, or at least your, your identity's ass to the wall. And once that's done, it's like the fucking eye of Mordor, man. They, once they see you, they will never unsee you. So this is a sobering time for us as Bitcoiners to look up and not rethink what we think about Bitcoin, but to start, I don't know, maybe like it's, I keep saying that the education is the keystone species in this space. And it really is. Maybe education needs to shift more towards how to do this kind of stuff. BTC sessions and all the, and Greg Foss, I guarantee you, they are not professional fundraisers. You know, it's, it's like we were all going raw, raw. Yeah, look, it's like we're just circumventing everything. Has anybody ever done a fundraiser? I mean, especially at this magnitude, especially with this kind of political ire all across the world. All the world's eyes are on Canada right now. They're on all the truckers. And that includes all the different, you know, various eyes of Mordor. There's not just one of them. It's like all of them. And they're all looking at BTC Sessions, and they're all looking at Greg Foss, and they're all looking at the truckers, and they're all looking at Trudeau, and they're all looking at this deputy prime minister, prime authoritarian, or whatever they call Freeland's ass. It scared me too. It scared the fucking piss out of me. That's just being honest. And if we're not going to gut up and be honest with ourselves about what do we need to do to take this technology, and I'm not talking about changing the technology. The technology itself is fine. It's how do we think about it? How do we use it? What steps do we have to take to make an ironclad fundraiser that nobody knows who started and 100% of the funds get distributed exactly as intended? That's a hard one. And if you don't think it's hard, I don't think you're being truthful with yourself. If you also think that this tells us this, they aren't going to be able to do anything, you know, because it's Bitcoin. Yeah, that's a dangerous line of thought. If you continuously go around thinking that everything's going to be fine just because Bitcoin, mm, no. And this, what's going on in Canada and the Hong Kong HODL funds you should be watching this extraordinarily closely because I think this is going to tell us, this is going to roadmap what we need to do in the future because whatever happens on the outside of, you know, the, the Hong Kong HODL thing at the very end of that story, the second that story finally comes to a close, if ever, we need to start writing a new set of directions as to how to handle this kind of shit in the future. So. Let's leave the freedom truckers to truck their freedom <clears throat> and ours as well. And let's go to John Nash. Um, if you want to see a really good movie about John Nash, you need to watch A Beautiful Mind with Russell Crowe. If you don't, you don't have to care about math. It's not like he's going to take you on a story. You know, it's not like the movie takes you on a story on how to do calculus in a fun way. No, 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 no. It's, it is an extraordinary movie about an extraordinary person. Sadly, John Nash lost his life along with his wife in a cab coming back from an airport uh, or yeah, like he was riding home to his, him and his wife's home in a cab from an airport. And he had just arrived at that airport from a country where he received yet another medal, probably for mathematics but watch A Beautiful Mind. Take the two hours or whatever, however long that movie is, sit your ass down with intent and watch it. Now, here's the article. It is Jal Tori. Uh, it is Bitcoin Magazine and it is entitled, How Bitcoin Fits with Beautiful Mind Mathematician John Nash's Ideal Money. Quote, I think of the possibility that a good start of international currency might evolve before the time when an official establishment might occur. Here, I am thinking of a politically neutral form of a technology utility rather than of a money which might, for example, be used to exert pressures in a conflict situation comparable to 
the Cold War from ideal money and asymptomatically ideal money. <clears throat> In the age of Keynesian economics evolving toward modern monetary theory, where governments confidently try to print their way out of the COVID crisis seemingly with impunity, we can understand how Bitcoin would be favored from the libertarian viewpoint. This is something that Satoshi foresaw when Bitcoin was in its infancy, writing that, quote, it's very attractive to be the libertarian viewpoint if we can explain it properly, end quote. It's also generally believed that Satoshi designed Bitcoin as a technology that would run counter to the concept that governments should act as their own lenders of last resort. This belief comes from the fact that Bitcoin's genesis blocked as time, block is time-stamped with the headline, The Times, January 3rd, 2009, Chancellor on Brink of Second Bailout for Banks. From a mainstream economics viewpoint, however, Bitcoin is not an ideal money. In fact, to most mainstream economists and central bankers, Bitcoin is a very bad money. This is because it has no value stabilization mechanism, or AKA inflation control. In response to this mainstream contention <clears throat> on the viability of Bitcoin as a globally adopted currency, the early libertarian Bitcoiners began to propagate a narrative about Bitcoin that has been dubbed the maximalist view. This view often draws on Austrian economic themes, as well as what has been formerly dubbed by Daniel Krawitz <clears throat> as hyper-Bitcoinization. In short, the Bitcoin maximalist believes that eventually the citizenry will get so sick of the degradation of the purchasing power of their respective national species that there will be a perpetual and self-accelerating process of leaving their respective currencies in order to hold Bitcoin, a currency with a destiny to perpetually increase in purchasing power terms, coincidentally, adherence to a hyper-Bitcoinization mindset, fits into the definition of the Nash equilibrium. However, as Bitcoin's market cap grows, it's starting to reach people of different political stances, and thus the narrative about what Bitcoin is and should be seems to be evolving. In 2010, Hal Finney commented on what he foresaw as being the future for Bitcoin in regard to its existence with the legacy financial system, writing, quote, Actually, there is a very good reason for Bitcoin-backed banks to exist, issuing their own digital cash currency redeemable for Bitcoin. End quote. Finney envisioned, a la George Selgin's The Theory of Free Banking, that Bitcoin would serve as the base settlement layer between banks, which themselves serve a privately issued currency. Interestingly, in counter to the maximalist narrative, Finney believed such a system would be stable, inflation-resistant, and self-regulating. Selgin's work on free banking involves a thought experiment about a fictional land called Rurthania. <laughs> Wow, Ruritania, that's an interesting name, in which the initial premise is that there is no monopoly issuer on the base money supply, although from a national perspective, such a premise wouldn't apply from a global perspective, and especially with Bitcoin in play, it cannot be said that there exists a single monopolist issuer of money. Enter John Nash. Off the cuff, most people won't recognize the name John Nash, however, most from the Western world will perk up when they are reminded of the movie A Beautiful Mind starring Russell Crowe. The movie portrays a brilliant mathematician that slowly begins to realize he has descended into madness. The movie is based on the life of John Nash. However, there are some curious inaccuracies. At the end of the movie, Nash is depicted as taking medication in order to deal with his delusional state of mind. In real life, it is well documented <clears throat> that Nash didn't recover using medication. Rather, as he put it in his autobiography, quote, gradually, I began to intellectually reject some of the delusionally influenced lines of thinking which had been characteristic of my orientation. This began, most recognizably, with the rejection of politically oriented thinking as essentially a hopeless waste of intellectual effort. So, at the present time, I seem to be thinking rationally again in the style that is characteristic of scientists, end quote. But perhaps a more curious mistake in the movie is in the scene in which Nash's wife tries to explain to him that the letters he has been writing in correspondence with American intelligence were actually never sent. This is provably wrong. As in more recent times, one such letter was declassified by the NSA and is published on NSA's website. It is an interesting, or it is interesting to note that Ron Rivest and 
Ari Sharmir, part of the team that invented RSA encryption, have presented that in this letter, quote, Nash anticipated the birth of complexity theory a decade later and the birth of modern cryptography two decades later. End quote. In the letter, Nash explained, quote, the significance of this general conjecture, assuming its truth is easy to see. It means that it is quite feasible to design ciphers that are effectively unbreakable. He went on to write, the nature of this conjecture is such that I cannot prove it, but this does not destroy its significance. End quote. Here, Nash saw something in regard to an unprovable conjecture, and later in the letter he suggested, quote, we should try to keep track of the progress of foreign nations towards unbreakable types of ciphers, end quote. In one of his last interviews, he reminisced on this concept. The game is governments don't want it to be understood, where their position is in terms of cryptological competence. In another correspondence with American intelligence, this time posted on the RAND website, Nash wrote about an insight he called parallel control, in which the idea is to decentralize control. This paper is interesting as it seems to contain a scaling insight in regard to how computers and computing might evolve in the future. Isn't it much better to have one machine comprised of 100 computers that takes a day for a problem than 100 which takes 100 days for a problem? Both letters are from the 1950s, just before Nash's friends, families, and colleagues would start to see him as being delusional. Quote, here, Argentina and El Salvador can be mentioned. They are adopting, at least temporarily, expedients that put the value of their domestic money on a fixed relation to the United States dollar. And, of course, Panama has had such a situation for a long time previously. This is not ideal money because the U.S. dollar is not an ideal standard for money value. If, for example, all of the countries in the world would base the value for their national currencies on the value of the British currency, then this situation would appear singular and unstable. While it was not so singular for a lot of countries to base their currency value on gold from currencies of improving quality. <clears throat> Nash eventually received a Nobel Prize for another paper from the same time period called Non-Cooperative Games. The Nash equilibrium concept he presented in this paper eventually became ubiquitously referenced across many different fields, especially in economics. It is said to be one of the most cited papers in existence, and so much so that often the reference will be used with no formal citation given. Wow. I spent a lot of time in sciences, okay? This is me talking. I spent a lot of time in the sciences. Citations are important. When your paper is so cited that you don't actually have to go through the, here's the, you know, the volume number, here's the publication that it was in, all the, the MLA stuff. Once you, when you can ditch that and just have the name of the paper and everybody knows what you're talking about, who boy, you have made it in a fourth notable work. In addition to the letter declassified by the NSA, the concept of parallel control in non-cooperative games, Nash presented a solution he called the bargaining problem, which seemed to effectively show the value of money in trade. These four papers laid the groundwork for an idea that Nash had at the time, which he eventually called ideal money. It was at this time, near 1960, that Nash decided to flee to Europe to exchange his American dollars for Swiss francs, which he felt had a better future or quality as measured by the concept he conceived. He was also trying to renounce his American citizenship. It is well written in his biographies that the United States military tracked him down and brought him back to his homeland, as he says in In Chains. That's, I guess, a book. He won the Nobel Prize in 1994 for non-cooperative games and began touring the world speaking and writing about ideal money in 1995. Quote, my talk linking the ideal money with the choices and actions of thrift or savings by persons or by economic agents was influenced by concerns that it would be wise not to speak too incautiously of the Keynesians when the times are such that massive public opinions may be supporting actions by which a state administration can act without going through the parliamentary process to write new legislation. Where did we just see that? Canada. They expanded the powers without any parliamentary. They, 
they, it's, it's, it's just, it's so bad. Therefore, I had arranged for 2012 to talk more cautiously in relation to whatever would impact with the Keynesians and with the political interests relating also to the scholarly factions allied with or forming the Keynesians, and this caution carries over naturally to 2013 also. That's a direct quote from John Nash himself. For the last 20 years of his life, since 1995, Nash had been touring the world cautiously and with obfuscation, professing his idea as to how the global financial system could be arranged in an ideal fashion. It is interesting to compare the ends of Nash's proposal with Satoshi's alleged distaste for banking bailouts. Nash explained an ideal money, the standard, as a basis for the standardization of the value of the international money unit would remove where it would be used the political roles of the grand partners. That's a direct quote from the book. Quote, the ultimate ultimately launched concept of ideal money became possible when I conceived of a practical basis for a standardization of the comparison of the value of the currency with an appropriate standard or ideal. And the key to that was the idea of an ICPI or International Industrial Consumption Price Index, says Nash in Asymptomatically Ideal Money. Nash formally entered his proposal for ideal money in the Southern Economic Journal's July 2002 edition based on the notation that there is tremendous value in simply having prices quoted conveniently as outlined in the bargaining problem. Nash began to consider what he called an industrial consumption price index, much like that of the consumer price index metric that the central banks of today use to target inflation, but instead... Nash wrote about a single index that all central banks would agree to share. The concept is something that he extrapolated from the favorability of the gold standard, but with an array of prices in order to decentralize some of the weaknesses of the similar or the singular nature of a gold standard. Quote, nowadays, however, few would propose a return to the actual use of simply the metal gold as a standard for the following reasons. One, the cost of mining gold effectively does depend on the technology. Recent cyanide leaching techniques have made it possible again to profitably mine gold at formerly abandoned sites in the United States so that it is now a big producer. However, the unpredictability of the cost is a negative factor. Two, the location of potential gold mining locations may not be politically appealing, so it would seem undesirable to make a political choice to enhance the economic importance of those particular areas. And three, there is some negative psychology about gold such that even if it were the most logical choice after all, the unpopularity of the idea could be very obstructive. In quote, ideal money. The general idea of having a basket of commodities prices that are used to measure inflation, whether on a national level or a global level, is not perfectly unique to Nash's proposal. Indeed, in a since-deleted tweet, George Selgin said on the matter, quote, his commodity basket standard, neither novel nor very appealing, end quote. Coincidentally, in ideal money and asymptotically ideal money, Nash almost seems to respond, quote, on a topic with such a universal relevance to human affairs, it is difficult, really, to say something new. But there can be novelty in the details and in the terms of context and the times, end quote. Let's take a break there and run the numbers. Flammable liquids being quenched after what can, I can only assume was a massive jump in prices yesterday in the maybe the later afternoon markets, which I don't generally keep track of, but let's just go through it. West Texas Intermediate is down four and three quarters of a point, yet is still at $90.94. Brent North Sea, likewise, down four and a third to $92.31. Natural gas is up 1.38% to $4.25. Gasoline is down four and a half points to $2.65. Gold is down 87, or sorry, 0.87 uh, points to 1,852 bucks. Silver is down two and three quarters. Platinum is down one and a half. Copper is up by a quarter 
Palladium is down five and a half points after yesterday's five and a half point jump. What does this all mean? Eh, probably something with Russia. They cooled off. I don't know. The discussions probably went well. Uh, we'll have to wait and see what kind of rhetoric the Biden administration cranks up because they they're, they want a war. They want to get people's uh, imaginations distracted by some kind of bullshit that is not on their shores. Agricultural futures mixed. Biggest loser today is wheat down two and a three quarters, uh, right followed by corn down two and one uh, two point one three percent. Biggest winner today is going to be coffee up one point one five percent. Dow is up over a point. S and P is up one point. God, one and a quarter point. Nasdaq is up. 1.62% and the S&P is up 1.13%. So everybody's breathing a sigh of relief, I guess. Who knows? Uh, 44263 bucks is what I got on the Bitcoin price. A quarter million transactions performed in the last 24 hours. That's over 10,000 transactions every hour on the hour with 752,000 BTC changing hands in that 24-hour period. We have a average transaction value of 2.96 BTC, a median transaction value of 0.015 BTC, or about 643 bucks. Block time still hideously low, eight, eight minutes and 44 seconds. Uh, let's see, we got 0.07 BTC taken in fees on a per block basis, and damn near 12 BTC taken in fees overall in the last 24 hour period. With a 4.64% drop in hash rate, we are still at 210.8 exahashes per second. Your shitcoin indicator is Doge, so 15 United States pennies for that shitcoin. 14,000 transactions waiting on nine blocks to clear. We have an $839.9 billion market cap, which is 6.89% of gold's market cap. And we can get 23.9 ounces of shiny metal rocks with our one Bitcoin, of which there are 18,958,994 and 3,450 of those are locked in the Lightning Network valued at $152.7 million being run over 20,122 nodes sporting 86,431 payment channels and 76.6% of it all is being run over Tor and it's 11,640 representative nodes that we know about. That's going to do it for Vitals. Let's get back to the Nash man. And by the way, it's probably, it's very probable <clears throat> that I won't be able to cover any of the other things that I wanted to cover because this is a long, long, long article. It's although I I'm a big fan of John Nash, so I enjoy reading it, and I'm, I'm hoping that you're getting something out of it. Again, if you want to uh, know more about John Nash, uh, look him up on DuckDuckGo or start with the movie Beautiful Mind. It's it's a great, it's a great flick, man. Safedine Amis. Famous for his narrative entitled The Bitcoin Standard, also opined on the concept of Nash's ideal money and ICPI, tweeting, quote, It's just another centrally planned currency based on ridiculous price stability index measurements, end quote. However, although Nash did invoke the concept of the ICPI in his proposal, he didn't actually propose it as the basis for his argument. Instead, he explained that he saw a different way that the world currencies might find interrelational stability. Quote, it seems possible and not unlikely, however, that if two states evolve toward having currencies of more stable value as measured locally by national CPI indices, that then also these distinct currencies would tend to evolve towards more stable comparative relations of value. Then, the limiting or asymptotic result of such an evolutionary trend would be, in effect, ideal money. But this, is, but this as a result achieved without the adoption of anything like an ICPI index as a basis for the standard of value, end quote. Of ideal money, pioneering Bitcoin advocate Adam Back has tweeted, quote, 
Also not convinced Nash's ideal money ideas are that much to do with Bitcoin. If I understand, he just proposed 0% inflation as objective and kind of SDR variant, but somehow linked to ICPI basket of commodities as a way to construct it, end quote. It's interesting to see the willingness of people to opine on Nash's proposal and to see how few of them have actually traversed the works. Oh man, just harshed on Adam back, bro. In fact, it is Nash himself who defeats his own concept, the ICPI showing that he only named it so that he can speak to it for the lack of a better comparison. Quote, we can see that times could change, especially if a miracle energy source were found. And thus, if a good ICPI is constructed, it should not be expected to be valid as initially defined for all eternity. It would instead be appropriate for it to be regularly readjusted depending on how the patterns of international trade would actually evolve. Here, evidently, politicians in control of the authority behind standards could corrupt the continuity of a good standard, end quote. My heavens, he's talking about what's going on. Put another way, if the cost of the production of one or some commodities in the ICPI was dramatically reduced by technological advance, the composition of the internationally chosen basket of commodities would need to be readjusted. As Nash noted above in regard to gold, the location of the production of commodities can be a source of political tension if they are monetized, uh, therefore, political conflict would be expected to arise at each readjustment period of the basket. Although useful as a notion, the ICPI is a political non-starter. Nonetheless, Nash left us with the advantages and weaknesses of the concept. Quote, the price of any commodity tends to gravitate toward the production cost. If the price is below cost, then production slows down. If the price is above cost, profit can be made by generating and selling more. At the same time, the increased production would increase the difficulty pushing the cost of generating toward the price, end quote, Satoshi Nakamoto. Here, we consider the possibility of using the price of Bitcoin as the sole commodity in an internationally held inflation target. Firstly, in regard to the weakness of the geographical location of Bitcoin mines, we can note that Bitcoin to be mined do not reside in any certain physical location. More importantly, we can consider the effect of a miracle energy source if Bitcoin was used as a measure of purchasing power stability of major currencies. If the cost to mine Bitcoin decreased dramatically, miners would flood the network looking to profit. However, the difficulty adjustment algorithm would eventually increase the cost to mine. From this view, it becomes apparent that Satoshi solved the problem that Nash outlined. Quote, if in each of the corresponding states, the authorities were using, in some sense, inflation targeting, then necessarily they would have some sort of price index that could be related to their issued currency. But it would also be very natural for each state to look at the comparative behavior in terms of value of the other leading currencies. Thus, second-order index comparisons become possible when the authorities in a state would look not only at domestic prices, but also at international value comparisons. And now we have only to imagine that a groundswell of popular demand for minimal inflation, the responsible authorities and governments so that they would so control the supply side of their money management activities so as to achieve that supposedly to be popularly desired result from ideal money and asymptotically ideal money. Paul Storks, famous for his drive chain BIP, gave his contention with Nash's proposal, saying that Bitcoin can't be a basis for Nash's ideal money because it is expected to have a deflationary nature, and Nash's proposal calls for 0% inflation as a target. However, this view conflates def definitions in a way that is difficult for some to understand. Inflation has many different definitions. One of the relevant definitions is a general decrease in the purchasing power of the money considered. A central bank has a similar but slightly nuanced definition of inflation because it further defines inflation through a set of prices, which it uses as a specific lens for comparison. If the exchange price of Bitcoin was used as the new metric for inflation, then 0% inflation would be achieved if the exchange price of the respective currency was stable in relation to Bitcoin. 
This would be called 0% inflation, even if it were obvious that the respective currency was increasing in purchasing power by the definition of a general decrease in prices. So, was Nash Satoshi? Quote, and little by little, specialists were becoming more to the point, and he was putting everybody to contribution as a conductor, you know. Hey, my friend, I need you to prove this and this. I think that you are the expert and you can give me this. I can use it to prove something more. As a conductor who would give assignments, you know, here you are the violin player, you play this and this. You are the trumpet player, you play this and this. Each one does their part. Nobody understands the great plan except when the orchestra starts to play. And Nash had the whole plan for this. And everyone was amazed when it was six months putting all the people to contribution Everyone knows this is the Nash inequality. The truth is, Nash didn't prove this inequality. He asked one of his colleagues to prove the inequality, an expert in this kind of thing. Quote, you want this inequality? Yeah, let me prove it for you. Here's how to do it. Thank you, end quote. And Nash would use it in that problem of distribution. He was a genius in these kinds of integrating parts. End quote. That's Cedric of... Viani is his name, Cedric Viani. Uh, this article doesn't intend to opine on whether or not Nash had anything to do with the creation of Bitcoin. However, given the consideration, it is often asked if Nash would have been capable of creating the code for Bitcoin. The above attestation by Viani is interesting to consider in this regard. Indeed, Nash was working on a different research project which happened to involve the same programming language that Satoshi used to implement Bitcoin. Nash was, in fact, quite familiar with computers. When asked if he considered himself as a technophile, he once answered, I'd like to think of myself that way. I was working with computers. It was sort of my big pastime. It was my cognitive therapy in my early days. So, or rather, sorry, quote, so... It occurs to me to think that which is not achieved by a grand action of establishment by fiat may alternatively tend to come into existence as a consequence of the process of evolution. And of course, after a certain degree of progress by evolution, the rest of the progress could possibly be realized by a convention or a process of fiat, end quote, from asymptotically ideal money. Mainstream economists are often quoted as saying that Bitcoin is no more than a speculative Ponzi scheme. This would certainly be the conclusion if you believe the intention of Bitcoin is to replace the existing major currencies. However, it simply can't, as it is inherently volatile with no accurate stabilization mechanism. Nonetheless, the cost and speed to settle with Bitcoin versus traditional systems doesn't compare if we consider high value transactions. From this view, it is only the liquidity and market cap that make Bitcoin inferior to the legacy settlement media. As Bitcoin's market grows, settling the highest value transactions that happen in our global economy becomes very attractive because it's cheap and fast using Bitcoin. At this point, considering Aselgin's Ruritanian, Ruritanian view, Bitcoin will asymptotically begin to stabilize the existing major leg legacy currencies. We should expect this to happen, not because of cooperation and political altruism, but as the process of settlement allows the international markets to favor the higher quality currencies over those that are not managed as well in this regard. That this would happen through the direct composition of the currencies rather than the will and morality of the central banking system seems to defeat the idea of Eric Voskuhl a contention he calls the ideal money fallacy in which he argues, quote, states only surrender this inflation tax under extreme duress and in such cases only briefly, end quote. <clears throat> quote, the script or plan for my talk linking ideal money with the choices and actions of thrift or savings by persons or by economic agents was influenced by concerns that it would be wise not to speak too incautiously of the Keynesians when the times are such that massive public opinions may be supporting actions by which the state administration can act without going through the parliamentary processes to write new legislation. Memo by Nash. Nash's argument is difficult to understand. 
He seems like an awkward speaker. He uses an old style of English, but he also has a past that would provide a very good reason to fear state reprisal, namely through insulin shock therapy. These days, it might be easier to see how it would be wise to speak cautiously about such a proposal that would remove where it would be used the political roles of the grand partners, the state authorities that can forgive the debts. Quote, the ultimately launched concept of ideal money became possible when I conceived of a practical basis for a standardization of the comparison of the value of the currency with an appropriate standard or ideal. And the key to that was the idea of an ICPI or industrial consumption price index, end quote. Nonetheless, we understand the proposal through the ICPI, not the misconception of it, being the basis for the proposal, but rather by using it to construct an ideal basis for our global monetary systems. We consider the strengths of such a proposal and then recognize the weaknesses are fatal that if the cost to produce relevant commodities dramatically changed, it would take a politically based cooperative to readjust the globally held basket of commodities. And finally, note that Satoshi's difficulty adjustment algorithm solves this weakness while retaining all of the stated strength of the ICPI. Woo, wow, there you go. That was the end of that article. And yes, there's a lot of stuff in there that is very difficult concepts. But I think the main one for me, and the, you know, sort of like the, the kiddie pool version takeaway for me is, it's possible that Nash might very well have been Satoshi. I, I don't think he was, it's not that I don't think he was, or I don't think he is. I think the most important thing here is to not give a shit who Satoshi was. But if you're going to go down that rabbit hole, if you're going to put on the tinfoil hats, I got to say Nash is a contender. He, he was understanding this stuff from, from a, the standpoint of game theoreticals, which basically he pioneered the modern version of. That's the whole, that's where he came out of. Again, watch, go watch A Beautiful Mind. It is worth your while, if for nothing else, than to sit down and watch a good movie, an interesting movie that has interesting characters and an interesting story. Yeah, I have no problem sitting down and watching The Watchmen or any number of, like, you know, Marvel comic movies. I check my brain in at the door. I ex expect to be entertained and I expect not to have to think at all about it. And that's okay. They are not good movies. I'm not saying that. The A Beautiful Mind is an extraordinary movie. It's very good. Russell Crowe does an astounding job in acting. The story is great, even though the, there are some obvious inaccuracies in it, but it's so worth your while to understand to start to understand who this John Nash guy is. Because without John Nash, there's no such thing as modern game theory. We'd, we'd have something completely different. It was John that did the, the heavy lifting of modern game theory. So you got to give respect where respect is due. And the fact that he himself ended the last part, the, la the, ver the final phase of his career, he was worried about what? Global financial settlement. Isn't that amazing? That's going to do it for the morning roundup. As always, if you want to support me and the things that I do, that is always appreciated. And I have two main vehicles for you to do that. My first and favorite is Podcasting 2.0, if you have to know. It's the way that you can stream me Satoshis while I stream you these dulcet tones and I can see them come into my lightning node that I own, that I operate, that nobody else has the keys to, that nobody else can see. And they can just go sit and spin if they want to know about it because it is in a box about the size of the palm of my hand sitting about a foot and a half, two feet away from me. You can stream me your value as I stream you what you think is value that I'm providing and in and as they collide, we end up with an agreement. We both find each other's value valuable. The second way to do that is Patreon. If you just don't feel comfortable with Lightning Network and Satoshis, 
and you're like, maybe you're a newbie and you don't own, you know, you're not running your own node. If you can run your own node, it's actually not that hard. There's a lot of places to learn how to do it. Uh, just hit up BTC sessions. He's actually one of the best, best dudes on the internet to ask. Um, and there's lots of guys. There's lots of really good guys. If you, if you want to get in touch with some of these people and you don't feel like you can do it yourself, just DM me on Twitter. I am ghost of Nunya on Twitter. That's all one word ghost of Nunya on Twitter. And I'll see if I can't put you in touch with, uh, either some materials and, and, and whatnot, but you can do it on Patreon. And yes, Patreon, very much like GoFundMe and Give, Set, and Go is something that could definitely be taken away from me at any given time, which is why at the end of each payment cycle, I immediately send all the cash via Stripe to Strike. Stripe with a P is how I send it to Strike with a K. That's Jack Maller's outfit. And it doesn't even end up in dollars in my account over at Strike. It ends up as Satoshi's. It ends up as Bitcoin because it's automatically converted the second that I send it there because that's the way that I've got my strike set up. 100% of any U.S. dollar amounts that go to my strike account is automatically converted to Satoshi's. And I sweep those into a hardware wallet so that I can keep the keys myself periodically. You know, when it, when it makes financial sense, given the fee rates. Um, but yes, you can, you, if you want to use a credit card or something like that, you can use Patreon. It is Bitcoin and podcast on Patreon. That's Bitcoin and podcast on on Patreon. Shit. I got to go. I'll see you on the other side. This has been Bitcoin and, and I'm your host, David Bennett. I hope you enjoyed today's episode and hope to see you again real soon. Have a great day.